<clears throat> I greet all of you again this morning in the name, the blessed name above all names, Jesus Christ, the sweetest name ever spoken by human lips. I do pray that you have come this morning to magnify him. I thank the Lord for the prayers offered, the reading of the scripture, the singing of these blessed hymns that so beautiful set before us our Savior. <clears throat> I want to greet all of our visitors again in the name of Christ. We are delighted to have you with us. We pray that God will bless and encourage you while you are here this morning. <clears throat> If you have a cell phone, would you please check it and make sure that it's on mute right now? We would take that as a great blessing and a kindness from you. <clears throat> if... Um, if you have looked at your outline, uh, I, would, I would encourage all of you <clears throat> to this morning, I, I don't want to discourage anyone from taking any notes. Please take the notes that you wish. But as you might guess from the outline, I will be moving through those heads pretty quickly. We are summing up what we've considered in 35 messages and summary, unfortunately, is not one of my gifts. So I'm, I will do my best this morning, and I will be moving at quite a speed. All of those headings have been preached, but not all at once. So we will be moving through that outline, I trust, fairly quickly. <clears throat> If any of you visiting have little ones that need to be quieted, uh, please feel free to take them uh, right through that door in the back. Uh, we have a large screen there where you can continue to follow the, uh, the message. And uh, if your little ones quiet down, please feel free to bring them back. You will see... Uh, our own people up and down as they're training those precious ones to be here with us. We also have a nursing mother's room. Uh, straight through that, you can ask anybody in the back, uh, I think, and they will tell you where the nursing mother's room should you need that. And we do pray that you will make use of it if you do need it. It was uh, actually designed by nursing mothers for Nursing Mothers, there's a screen in there as well um, with volume control so that you can watch and uh, at your leisure. That being said, we're going to read two passages this morning. Acts chapter 22, we're going to begin in Acts 22. <clears throat> We will begin at verse 30. 
and read into chapter 23. We will read from 22, verse 30, into chapter 23. And then we will read the first 16 verses of chapter 24. We have done expositions of these passages, but we're coming back to where we started. And I have questions for us regarding that. So I do pray that our hearts and minds will unite as one as we consider uh, things new and old this morning. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30. <clears throat> Friends, this is the holy word of God. May we hear it by the power of God's Spirit. Verse 30 of chapter 22, the Word of God. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he, this is the Roman chief captain, loosed him, Paul, from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the counsel, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took, and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself." 
because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please remain standing if you are able as we seek our God in prayer. Brethren, let's unite our hearts at the throne of grace. O Heavenly Father, how we praise thee. Almighty God, the citizens of heaven surround thee. They shout their praises unto thee and to thy holy Son, who is the very centerpiece of glory. As the holy scene of worship unfolds in heaven, so we add our little voices to their great ones. We praise Thee. We worship Thee. We adore Thee. We love Thee, O God. We magnify Thee as the one true and living sovereign. How we praise Thee, O Creator of heaven and earth. How we praise Thee for the holy love that Thou didst have for us before the foundation of the world. See, hear, O oh God, look down upon us and upon all of thy children that are gathered across that, this globe and that have gathered already and that will still gather throughout the day. Look at all thy dearly and eternally loved children and manifest thy goodness, thy power, thy holiness, thy mercy, grace, and love to us. Wilt thou not do it? Look, Lord. Look, gaze upon us with that holy gaze that sees through us to our very souls. Thou knowest what we are before thee. Thou seest us. Everything is open and naked before thy blazing eyes at this moment. Thou knowest our sins. Thou knowest our crimes against heaven. Thou knowest those that love thee and trust thee and praise thee. Oh God, bless thy dear children. Here they are. Bless them. Thou lovest them. Thou didst so love them. Thou gavest them thy son. Thou didst shed his blood to show them thy great and mighty love, thy cleansing love, thy purifying love, thy holy love. Oh God, may we know it here. Don't deprive us. We want thee. We want thee. We want thee. We're not, We're not interested in entertainment. 
Lord, we don't need a lecture. Lord, we, we need the word of God to come with power in the spirit of God. Father, come and conquer those that are lost here this morning. Thou hast bound the strong man, Lord Jesus. Plunder his house here this morning. Plunder those that are lost and draw them out of darkness into thy glorious light. And O oh Christ, O oh Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, come sweetly. Into thy place. Bring us into thy banqueting house. Fly thy banner of love over us here. Kiss us with the kisses of thy mouth. We want to know thee, O Christ. Thy bride stands here waiting for thy presence. We are asking, O Christ. O God of mercy. O Son of righteousness. Wouldst thou make Thy love known to us here today. Make known thy holiness. Make known, O Lord, if thou wouldst rebuke us, reprove us, chastise us in thy love and make us more like thee. But, oh, may we drink of the sweet fountain, Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant it to us, O Lord. Grant us we are thirsty, we are hungry for him. Now, come. I do pray, I do pray, Father, for those that are in deep sorrow today. We do pray for the Atkinson family in the loss of their dear father and husband. Oh, God, comfort every soul. Christ Jesus, draw near them. Pour in thy sweet comforts. Make them to know thy strength and thy encouragement here this morning. And Father, I do pray for my own beloved bride. I pray, oh God. As she undergoes the knife tomorrow. That thou wouldst have mercy. Great mercy. Oh Christ. Thou dost love and care for thy bride. Have mercy upon mine. O oh Lord, we pray that thou hast raised up many that were sick. And I pray that they would be filled with joy today. Healing joy in Christ. Oh, may we now as we feast on the word and later as we feast on the bread and the cup, the fruit of the vine that we might taste, that we might drink of the fountain of life, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Is it possible for a disciple of Jesus Christ to live with a clear conscience? The Holy Spirit through the mouth of the Apostle Paul 
says in this text, yes, it is his own profession. Paul declared without hesitation in the presence of his enemies, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul's enemies heard him, but they thought he was a heretic, a troublemaker, a criminal in the eyes of God that should be put to death as soon as possible. How dare such a wicked, pestilent man who was doing so much harm claim to have a good conscience? So Paul's remark brought an immediate response from Ananias, the high priest. He commanded those standing by Paul to hit him on the mouth. Debate and dissension followed, which became so violent, the Roman chief captain feared that the Jews would rip Paul to pieces. So, he sent soldiers to conduct Paul to safety. While Paul's declaration of a clear conscience nearly caused a riot among his hearers, we as believers in Christ should have a different reaction. We should react. But how? Dear friends, how do we react? How did you react when you read those words? When you hear Paul say, I have lived in all good conscience. How many of us can say that? I have lived in all good conscience. Before God. Until this day. Paul would later declare before Felix, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That is a grueling and demanding workout. Precious people of God, do you and I Pump iron to have always a good conscience before God and other people? If not, why not? Paul's declaration about his conscience should ignite at least four powerful reactions in our soul. Number one, meditation. We should think deeply about our conscience until it affects us. Number two, examination. By the Spirit and Word of God, we must dig down deeply into the real condition of our souls. Most of us are living in fiction. Fantasy about what our Christian life says. Number three, supplication. We must humbly, persistently, don't miss that word, 
humbly, persistently, ceaselessly ask God for it. And number four, application. We must, by faith in Christ, avoid sinning against God and others. It isn't just about sitting around and thinking, okay, I have a conscience. Mm. Maybe I should do a little better. No. It is learning how to actively engage with others knowing they have a conscience. And you need to respect it, even if you disagree with it. Application. Do you apply what you're hearing from the Word of God? Or do you just listen to sermons and go home without thinking about it? So I ask all of us, all of us here, to be judgment day honest before God right now. After 35 sermons about conscience and stumbling blocks, my beloved brethren, have you meditated on those two subjects? Have you meditated on those two subjects? Have you contemplated how you have treated the conscience of others? Have you deeply thought about how you may have stumbled others? Have you considered how others may have stumbled you or even this congregation? Have you examined yourself prayerfully and honestly by God's truth? Have you earnestly and humbly asked Christ for further light, further understanding of such matters? And if necessary, have you asked Christ for spirit wrought repentance for sins against your own consciences or the conscience of others? Has the preaching of 35 sermons done one of those things in your life? And can you answer to God for what he's told you? You've got to answer that. We will. There's a thing called the day of judgment. Now let me put it another way. Have you applied and are you applying God's word about these things to your life? Has one sermon made any difference out of 35? Any difference? Noticeable change. Changes of motivation. Changes of the way you look at God's people. Or was it just, mm, as I said, that was number 33. I'll put it yet another way. <clears throat> After hearing so many sermons on conscience and stumbling blocks, has Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit and the light of his word, changed anything in your life? 
about things that have happened, are happening, or will happen in this congregation. Oh, may Christ bear much good fruit in every regenerate soul here on these matters. When whole chapters of the Bible are given to this subject, how seriously are you taking it? How seriously am I taking it? Our message then is, what have we learned about the conscience? What have we learned about the conscience? May our triune God bless us with the blessing of his power and presence in our midst today. For his everlasting glory and for the good of his eternally loved people. Well, what is the conscience and what does it do? We're going to be reviewing Now, if somebody were just to ask you that question right now, after 35 messages, could you answer them if they said, what is the conscience? And what does it do? The conscience is the inner capacity, the inner capacity that makes us, listen carefully, that makes us aware Of what we believe to be right and wrong. It's that thing about us. That capacity. Whether uh, you want to call it a faculty or not. It's a power within us. It is something real within every single person. And it makes us aware. Of what we believe to be right or wrong. Everyone in here can say, I, I, that was wrong. I, you shouldn't have done that. Or, oh, that was great. That was wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Why? And on what basis can you say that? Because you have a conscience. It's in there. And it's constantly telling you, this is right. This is wrong. <sighs> to get a Holy Spirit wrought biblical sense of conscience, we examined six Old Testament passages that use the word heart in the same way as the New Testament speaks of conscience. The Old Testament speaks about it, just uses the word heart most of the time. Then we considered 27 New Testament passages that use the word conscience. Seeing the use of the word in the context of those passages gave us a solid foundation upon which to understand that definition. It is that inner capacity, that inner internal capacity that makes you aware of what you believe to be right and wrong. Well, The most important words in that definition are these. What we believe to be. What we believe 
to be, right or wrong. The most important words are easily passed over. <laughs> like every other part of our humanity, sin has corrupted our conscience. So it can and sometimes does mislead us. It can tell us that something is sinful when it's righteous. And sometimes it will tell us that something is righteous when it's sinful. Therefore, it is vital that we inform our conscience with God's truth, properly interpreted and applied. Not just sticking verses in your head, but learning what they mean and applying them to real life situations. Those are two different things. You can find people that are just like a machine. You can push a button and out comes loads of Bible verses. But the Pharisees could do that. <laughs> Samuel Rutherford said, to see God, to see God and his beauty expressed in Christ and the comeliness and incomparable glory of his amiable and lovely essence as held forth to us in Christ is the highest reach of the conscience. That's what heaven's going to be, isn't it? Are we not going to see him face to face? Is that not what we long for? Now, that's the model of whom we're all being shaped. Your conscience can't go any higher than the beauty of God in Christ. So you need to fill your mind with it. We must fill our consciences with Jesus Christ and his word. So then, let us consider the nature then of conscience. Our conscience can distinguish what it believes to be true or false. Therefore, it passes judgment on our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And it pronounces them right or wrong, good or evil, well done or badly done. Joel Beakey and James LaBelle tell us that the Puritan Richard Sibbs, quote, compared the authority of the conscience to a divine court within the human soul where it serves as witness, accuser, judge, and executioner. Close quote. The Puritans regularly referred to the conscience as God's deputy, God's vice regent within us, God's spy in our bosoms and God's sergeant he employs to arrest the sinner. Conscience then functions as God's internal justice system. As long as you have a conscience, court's always in session. And we may conclude this, the state of our conscience reveals the state of our spiritual life. The state of your conscience 
reveals the state of your spiritual life. So taking this into consideration, we spent months considering portions of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans 14 and 15. Those five chapters are central to healthy Christian living. So let's consider very quickly 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Paul's letter to the Corinthians revealed that the church had numerous spiritual problems. And one of those problems was eating food offered to idols and the practice of eating it in the pagan temples. So Paul was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove in the way he addressed this issue. A few of the, a few of the important things that we learned are these. One, Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. He says, now, as touching things offered unto idols, and then he breaks into an argument, most likely raised by the Corinthians, we know that we all have knowledge. Paul answers that by saying, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. That means builds up. Knowledge is a good thing. Paul is not saying that there's some kind of evil or wicked um, characteristic of knowledge. But what he is saying is that that good thing can be used the wrong way. We can have the wrong attitude just because we have a little bit of knowledge. He says, but that doesn't happen with love because real love, Christ-like love, is always trying to build people up. Paul's letters make clear that the Corinthians had grown prideful about what they knew of God's truth. But love edifies. Love builds up. So Paul laid the foundation of his entire argument on one simple statement. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Secondly, our knowledge of the Bible and theology is limited. It's limited. Verse 2, Paul addressed the Corinthians' pride. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. I don't care how many books you've read. I don't care if you've read Owen from cover to cover in every volume that he wrote. You're still limited to what you know. You're a lot closer. (laughs) But you're still limited. I'm limited. We only know so much about the Word of God. So we must always be aware that our knowledge of God's Word, which shapes and informs our conscience is limited. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? It means you ought to be humble about what you know. That should make us humble, not prideful. Number three, the mark of a true Christian is love for God. Not simply a 
huge catalog of facts. Facts are important. We're not downing facts. The Bible's full of facts. But the fact of the matter is you can know a lot of facts and not know God. A Christian knows and loves God. <clears throat> if any man love God, the same is known of him. Number four, we must be cautious that we do not draw wrong conclusions from God's word. Oh boy, that's easy. We do that all the time. Read a few verses, hear a, hear a sermon by someone that we really like, and then we start spouting it as if we know that he interpreted correctly. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. I've learned some wrong things from some really right men. And no doubt have shared wrong things attempting to be right. We must be cautious that we do not draw wrong conclusions from God's word. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And let us be careful, brethren. I mean this. Be careful. <clears throat> the Corinthians argued, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, <clears throat> whether, in <clears throat> whether in heaven or in earth, uh, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we by him. What are they arguing? What are they saying here? Well, based on their understanding of Paul's teaching, of, of God's word, the Corinthians were probably asking things just like this. Why can we not eat in the temples? We know there's only one God. We know that the pagan thing is fiction. We know it. We've learned it. If that's the case, we ought to be able to go down and eat at the temple. Paul says, no. We know that there's only one God. We know that the idols are nothing in the world. Why, was, why must we change the way we live so drastically? One of the big problems with American Christianity is they profess Christ and their lives don't look much different. Sometimes for decades. Sometimes for as long as they're drawing breath. Something's wrong with that picture because Jesus is always at work in the regenerate. I mean, it's, I mean, all of us could be wearing a sign, building in progress. You know, I mean, that's what's going on. God's always working on his people because he loves them and he's not going to stop dealing with you until you're like his son, Jesus. Not going to happen. But they're taking their theology. They're taking their understanding of truth. They've got it. There's only one God, etc. But they've come to the conclusion that because they know this, it ought to be okay for them to go into a pagan temple and eat. It's affecting our families. It's affecting our jobs. Because religion and work were rarely separated in those days.
Paul argued back. Five, love must prevail because arrogant liberty can ruin other believers. Paul countered their arguments. Howbeit, there is not in any man or in every man that knowledge. That's what he says back to them very simply. Yeah, you know there's a God good. You know, there, there are many false gods out there. Glad you got that down. But not everybody understands it the way you understand it. And not everybody knows how to deal with that. He said, there are some with, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, up to this very moment. That eat it is a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. That's the way they would argue back. Well, we've learned a good we've learned a good bit of theology. We're accepted to God by the blood of Jesus Christ only. Faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior. We know that we're accepted of God. So why can't we go to the temple? It's kind of like children after the father has said, no, we're not going to do that. And it's like, oh, yeah, but. Mm. And then the arguments start. All the, 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 the young lawyers in training are starting on their father. Yes, but, 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 but. All right. And Paul just stays the course. No. No, don't go into the temples. Not everybody understands. Some of them still go into that temple and as soon as they're in that atmosphere, it begins to work on their minds. If we eat, we know that we're not the better and if we eat not, are we the worse? Take heed, Paul says. All right. I hear the argument, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. There's the word. What? God's truth can become a stumbling block? Yes, wrongly handled. It sure can. <clears throat> Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish? For whom Christ died? What stronger thing could you say to another human being? I, 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 what, what stronger thing could you say to a human being? Are you going to destroy Jesus' work? Because you think you can go down to this or that or do these things or those things? Paul was serious when he argued. But when ye sin so against the brethren, ah, those words should bother us. We can read them and go, and, and go out and do something without even thinking. When you sin, so, uh, who are the brethren? People for whom Jesus died. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds every day affect people around you. Do you ever take into consideration how your thoughts, words, and deeds are affecting everybody. You know and can complain very quickly about somebody's thoughts, words, and deeds bothering you, right? But do you think about your tone of voice, your body language, how you speak to someone? 
When you sin so against the brethren, you wound their weak conscience. And you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Number six, to sin against another believer is to sin against Christ. That's what the passage just said. To sin, for me to sin against any one of you is a sin against him who hung on the cross of Calvary for my soul and for that person's soul. How serious is that? How serious is that? I'm looking. I'm looking, as I've said before, I am looking at Jesus's property. How am I going to talk to it? How am I going to speak? How am I going to live in front of it? I will give account. And so will you. So, number seven, Christ-like love, sacrificial and self-denying, not just some thrill. Christ-like love, sacrificial and self-denying, is the remedy. Paul makes this statement. It's one of the most powerful things he wrote. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, in other words, the word offend there does not mean it bums them out. It makes them angry. They're displeased with it. If it gives them an occasion to sin, that's what he's talking about. I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I'm so concerned about my brother, my sister. I'm so concerned about the children of God, that how I speak, when I speak, makes a difference. I need to think about how I'm going to speak. Or what I'm going to do. How I'm going to act. It's Christ-like love that remedies the situation. Giving of myself, denying myself for the other's well-being. That's Christianity. You can't leave that part out. Eight, Paul surrendered his apostolic rights for the good of the Corinthians. I'm only going to say one thing about chapter nine. It's a lengthy and, and difficult chapter, but I believe that we can sum up all that Paul says in chapter nine with these words. For though I be free from all men, that's the Christian position, I am free from all men. Not one of you here is the master and Lord of my mind. Not one. And vice versa. But though I be free from all men, yet I've made myself servant. And the word there in the Greek is slave to all. You mean you serve people that irritate you? Hmm. No comment. You do things for people that um, you don't think are that great? <laughs> no comment. But let me just say, what do you do? This is not little... 35 messages say this is not little. Five chapters of scripture and, and others say this is not little. 
Paul says, I've made myself the slave to everybody. I'm free from everybody, but I've chosen to be everybody's slave. You can't make me your slave, but I can enslave myself to you. That's Christian. Under the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law to them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am, all, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. You can't call yourself a Christian and ignore this. You cannot. Now, unfortunately, you may attempt it, but at that point, you'd simply be proving what's really in your heart. This is the word of God. This is the apostle of Christ who's saying, look, I've got all the liberty in the world. But you know what? I enslaved myself for others' well-being. Do those principles govern our consciences? They should be. They should be in there. Humming. For the glory of Christ and the love of his people. I do pray it so that each one of us can say, absolutely, yeah, this is old hat here. Yeah, we've been, we're, we got it the first time around. Like your children, right? Nine, number nine, Christ-like self-denying love is the remedy. There it is again. Again, chapter 10, verses 1 through 31, there's so much that could be said. We'll just summarize it from Paul's argument in this chapter with the following verses. Here sums up what he's saying in the whole chapter where he illustrates it so plainly. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own. But every man another's wealth. Wealth there doesn't mean his money. Wealth is being used in an older sense of his well-being. In other words, don't seek your own. Make sure everybody else is doing okay. He said, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God. Including denying yourself for the well-being even of your enemies. Ooh. Love your enemies? Forgot that part. Mm. It's a shame when God's people even have to look at each other like that. Happens. But don't confuse this with people who live in unrepentance. All right. Well, we can move on quickly. Romans chapter 14 and 15. 
We took up those chapters and we, we laid down these distinctions as we did so. Number one, primary doctrine. Number two, secondary doctrine. And number three, conscience controversies. And this is what we said. Primary doctrine, the non-negotiable truths of God's word, such as Trinity, the incarnation, the blood atonement of Christ, the resurrection. Those are non-negotiable. You can't deny those and profess to hold the faith of Christ's churches. So we're not talking about primary doctrines. Number two, secondary doctrines, they're important. They must not be neglected, but they're not foundational to our salvation. For instance, the Lord's return. To deny the Lord's return is to deny the scriptures and therefore to disqualify yourself of bearing the name as Christian. But the Lord's people, since the earliest church, have disagreed about when he's going to return. We can disagree about those things without being heretics, or at least in our own categories. Right? <laughs> My group's the one. We've got it right. We know, we know when he's going to come back. Yeah, well, good. We'll be waiting with you. <laughs> now, number three, conscience controversies. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 and uh, 15. And on top of that, that's exactly what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. At certain points, he's talking about conscience controversies, eating meat at the temple. So we've concerned ourselves with conscience controversies, not those first two big categories. Then we took up Romans 14 and some of the main chapters of Romans 14 and 15, uh, not chapters, some of the main points of those two chapters are these. Number one, Christ's congregations usually include both strong and weak consciences. For those of you that think you're the strong ones do you have love for those that are weak or do they have to agree with you to be saved now what's Paul's point this is standard stuff every church has stronger and weaker believers get used to it learn how to love each other in it him that is weak in the faith Receive ye. The word can be translated welcome. Welcome them. Somebody is weak in the faith? Yes. That's what Paul says. But not to doubtful dispositions. Not just so that you can judge his conscience. Not to arguments that are difficult to deal with because the scripture does not address them straightforwardly. Those are the ones where we have to get principles and draw the principles out. And we don't all draw on the same principles. And we don't all come to the same conclusions. About the, the, the principles that we draw. There's got to be something bigger than that. You know what, what's bigger than that? The love of Christ. That's what's bigger than that. Loving his property. <laughs> loving his people. Loving those for whom he shed his precious blood. Therefore, we need to remember that number two, God receives his children, whether strong or weak. Verses three and four, let not him that eateth 
despise him or look down on him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. The Jews were judging them back for looking down on them for not eating. He says, let's, let's stop this. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant, says Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, to his own master? He standeth or falleth. Yea, he should be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. Weak and feeble as I am, God can take this straw and stand him up in a hurricane. Because he's God. Because he loves his people. Number three, all believers should be fully persuaded in what they believe. Verses 14, uh, verse 5 of chapter 14. When it comes to conscience controversies, one man esteemeth one day above another, another man esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, I gave a very long list when we did that particular sermon of the things that you should do to make sure that your mind is fully persuaded. If not, you're probably still hanging on the two or three arguments you make for certain positions. Do better. Study more. Think more deeply. Three proof texts don't make the case. They can lead you in the right direction or you can take them and come to the wrong conclusions like the Corinthians did. We know there's one God. Now, can we eat the temple now? Number four, Jesus alone is the Lord of his people and their conscience. Amen. Now that ought to bring an amen out of somebody. Jesus alone is the Lord and, uh, of his people and their consciences. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. Notice, to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's with his blood-bought property. You be careful how you handle his property. He loves his people, so should we. Number five, all believers will give account of their lives in the day of judgment. How is it that we feel so confident judging other people? I'm talking about conscience controversies, not primary doctrines, not secondary doctrines. Conscience controversies, things that are not commanded by Scripture, things that are not prohibited by Scripture. That's what Paul's talking about in these passages. But that's one of the places where God's people disagree the most. And he says, now you need to realize something. We're all going to stand before God. Nobody's going to have <laughs> his theological ducks in a row so well that he won't hear something from the Lord about the way he lived his life. How he treated God's people. Matthew 25. He did it unto him, the least of these, my brethren. 
He did it to me. How do you treat his people? We have, to, we have to use discernment. There are times when we have to say, this person is not living like a Christian. That's why there's such a thing as church discipline, and we have to put them out. But you don't do it right away. You plead with them. You pray for them. You encourage them. You try to re- reclaim them. Number six, we must not let our liberty destroy a weaker believer. That's God's property. Judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block. Are we getting this? Has anybody come to realize how great a sin putting a stumbling block before someone else is? Or is it just another word and another series? Let's go talk to my friends now. Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now he's talking, obviously, about Jew and Gentile there. You're hearing the categories, clean and unclean. That's coming from the Old Testament. Their minds were bound to the Old Testament scriptures, and there were things that they're still seeing that they think must be done or must be avoided. The Gentiles were never under that. But Paul says, you know what? Those of you that think you're stronger in this, you need to die to yourself on their behalf. And you over here that are wrestling with your, the days you're observing in the minute, stop judging the guys that are eating. He doesn't take sides. He's clearly on the side of the Gentiles. We that are strong, he says. But even though he took their side, He didn't do it in the argument. You, this is what you need to be thinking. You, this is what you need to be thinking. We don't want to do that. We want to choose up sides. And then we can all say, oh, I thought that about them all along. Boy, that's so sinful. By the way, it's satanic. You get that? It's satanic. We want to avoid being functional Satanists. We want to follow Christ. We want to love his people. And there are times when we have to disagree. There's times when we have to meet in another building than a group of saints. But we can still love them. Well, number seven, all believers should seek peace with other believers. Are there times when we disagree? Yes, of course. Are there times when it's important to disagree? Absolutely. Are there times when you should open your mouth and say something about what's going on? Yes. But that's not every situation. You have to learn discernment. When to be quiet. When to say something. When to cover the blanket of love. And when to say, no. Uh, This is a sin that must be repented of. We're not going to be able to get along until you've repented of that. But it has to be a biblically defined sin. All these things matter. All the, how practical can this be? Paul says very plainly, For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow 
after the things which make for peace. Now, very often, I'll be careful here. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I've, I've had the broad brush spanking recently. So I want to say as plainly and clearly and hopefully as cautiously as I can. Many of us just a little have a little pocket of friends and we just hang with them. As long as people are kind of in the groove with that little group, we're okay with them. Doesn't matter who else is here. That's not true of everybody. But it is true of some. Here's your family. Jesus says so. Does it mean we, we all love each other the same way? Well, with the same quality of love, yes. But in the same way with every single person? Of course not. We are human beings. Jesus even had an inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they went with him up on the Mount of, of Transfiguration. The others were standing down at the bottom of the mountain trying to cast out a devil and couldn't do it. That's what was going on. Oh, my friends, do you seek peace? With everybody in here. Might not be called upon. You know. But would you? Do you seek peace. With Jesus' people. Or do you just have your six friends. Number eight. All believers should deny themselves. For the well-being of others. Verse 21, it is neither good to eat flesh, nor drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. I knew a fellow once who got in with a group of everything's my liberty, and he'd been wanting for a long time to smoke a cigar, and so he started smoking cigars in front of other Christians. And someone actually said to him once, do you think you ought to be doing that? That's threatening, right? Really terrible. Very graciously asked. He took in a big old puff and blew the smoke in their face. Now, let me ask you, does that sound like what we're reading? See, to a certain degree, that's exactly what the Gentiles in Corinth were doing when they were going into the temple. I can go. That's unbiblical. That is unchristian. It doesn't mean you can't do certain things, but you certainly don't parade them in front of others. Something you're wanting to do, you may be absolutely convinced from the word of God that this is a right thing to do. But put in a certain situation, would you be able to say with Paul, as long as the world stands, I won't do it. If it's for the good of everybody else. <laughs> Number nine, all believers must embrace or reject what they do by faith. I could spend a lot of time on this. We, we won't. <laughs> I'm still flying. Right? Hast thou faith, says Paul, have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. In other words, he may, I may allow something in my home that I would never do in your house. Not something that was intrinsically evil, but something you didn't agree with. I might do it in my home. Now, if you come to my house, oh, we're not doing it. 
Not because we're phony, but because we care about your spiritual walk. That's Paul's idea. Other people's wealth. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. Do you hear this? People ask uh, pastors, elders all the time, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Well, sometimes we have a a fairly clear answer for some things, but other times it's like, uh, well, there are some people here that don't agree with that, but there are some people who agree. Be very cautious about what you do, who you do it in front of. Don't parade it in, in, in front of other people. But here's the catch. If you can't do it in the faith of Jesus Christ, you can't do it. It's that simple. Because your conscience is important. You start violating it, it doesn't take very long before you can make that thing quiet. I've done something. I know I shouldn't have done this. Next time you do it, it's not so bad. You do it again. Then you start getting used to it. Children, they lie. They know they shouldn't lie. They know they shouldn't lie to mommy and daddy. But after a while, just as soon lies tell you the truth. It happens. You can kill off that conscience, and that's a dangerous place to be. So, by faith, that's the bottom line. First of all, is it forbidden by Scripture? You can't do it. Is it something Scripture doesn't forbid? But there are issues about it. Be cautious. But if you do it, make sure you're doing it because you believe the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe it's permitted in his word and you walk in it. But not blowing smoke in others' faces. That make sense? All right. Number 10, the strong must not please themselves, but build up others as Christ did. The strong must not please themselves, but build up others as Christ did. Chapter 15 is astonishing. I I only have time to quote one verse from it, or, or, or it's actually the first two, three verses. Once again, Paul's most important statement in that whole chapter is right here. We then that are strong. You believe you're the strong one? We then that are strong ought to do whatever we want to do because it's our liberty. Uh, no. That may be American Christianity, but it's not the scriptures. Paul says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good unto edification. Ah, we're back at that that wonderful word, edification. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And Paul says, now I'm going to tell you where I got that idea from Jesus. Jesus was the eternal son of God that came into this world. He narrowed, he limited everything about his life to come in among sinners. The one who had known the glorious praise and adoration, the full-hearted Worship of those in heaven. He came down to this cesspool. 
And he didn't spend his time going, eh, not them. He would go to the Samaritans, those half-breeds. He would go to tax collectors. The religious people couldn't hand that, handle that. He didn't please himself. He didn't come to please himself. He came to do good to others. That's what his spirit produces in his people. So, even Christ pleased not himself. The eternal son of God. God incarnate. The creator of the universe. The sustainer of the universe. The most holy. The angels say, holy, holy, holy. If they could get hoarse, thankfully they can't up there. If they could get hoarse, they would shout their vocal cords out, holy. And he came down. He came down for people like me. For people like you. And you are not going to care for others. Something wrong with your Christianity. If that's the case. So. We're down to our last heading. We can maintain a clear conscience toward God and men. We looked through all of these things to try to help us understand Paul's doctrine of denying ourselves and loving others. We can have a clear conscience if we walk in those things, but you have to maintain them. If you have a car, (laughs) you got maintenance, right? If you're living in this world, check your body. You need maintenance. It doesn't just work, right? In fact, things you never thought could happen to your body happen. Whoa. I can tell you. The governor of Louisiana, while I was still living there, was asked by a local news reporter. It was his birthday. And he just turned 60. So he turned 60 in the governor's mansion. They said, wow, governor, what do you think about all this? You know, you're, you're experiencing your, your 60th birthday here in the governor's mansion. What, what, do, you, what do you think? He said, It's all about maintenance. That was it. He was at a time in life when all of a sudden he was having to fix everything on his body at some place or another. Parts wearing out. Even though he was the governor, couldn't stop it from happening. And you won't either. It'll happen sooner or later. Maintenance. And your conscience is the same way. You must maintain it. It doesn't just float along okay. Because you've got sin still in there. Your flesh is still saying, oh, this is great. Go pursue that. And you haven't realized that the word of God says, no, don't ever do that. So there's four things that I hope you would remember. Above all, above all, in order to maintain a clear conscience, we must have a right understanding of the gospel and justification by faith alone. You want that conscience? 
in humming good tune. You need to make sure you've got a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loved his people before the creation of the world. He purposed to save them as their prophet, priest, and king. He came into this world to live for every believer. He shed his blood and died upon Calvary's cross for every believer. He rose again the third day for every believer. He has done everything necessary to save them. He even ascended into glory and sat down at the Father's right hand, having completed his work to intercede for every believer, every one of them. Weak to the strong. He loves them all and he's keeping them. He's done everything, everything necessary to save his people from their sins. He did all that because he loved them. And the one biblical way of peace for any conscience is justification to be declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. That quiets a guilty conscience. When you fail... You look to the cross. You don't say, well, I did a little better yesterday. Look to the cross and say, my sin put him there. What's he doing up there? He's paying for my sins. And that makes the voice quiet. There were times in the first few years after I left the music business where I would lie on my bed and weep because I could see thousands of young people that I misled. Thousands, thousands couldn't sleep. Agony. But when the cross came into view, it's like, it's done. Be quiet. He has paid for this. And you know, Paul did that because he kept remembering the shrieks of the women that he dragged out of their homes. The men that he had thrown into jail, destroying the families. You're not going to get the kind of peace Jesus promised without Jesus' work to forget yours. And remember his. If you don't have the gospel right. You're never going to find. The peace that passes all understanding. Justification by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Is the one unchanging truth. That will quiet any raging conflict. Any raging conscience. And it'll quiet it. It'll put the fire out. Meditate on that justification regularly. Meditate. Meditate on the gospel regularly. Number two. We must load our consciences with the pure word of God. Our flesh will deceive us. The devil will accuse us. And the world will confuse us. 
Our consciences will never judge rightly when we listen to their voices. We must read, study, and memorize God's word if we would keep our consciences pointing to true north. Number three, we must enliven our consciences by communing with God. Imagine a young man coming to a young woman. He's a suitor. He says to the father, please let me marry your daughter. The father says, yes. He goes and gets on his knees before or whatever thing he does. He takes her by the hand and says, will you marry me? You're the one. You're the one. You're the one I want to have for my wife, my companion, for all of this life. I want you to be the one that walks with me toward the celestial city. I want you to be the mother of my children. She says, I do. And then he doesn't speak to her anymore. What's wrong with that picture? How can you say you love somebody and you don't talk to them? What are you talking about? You're talking about some mental fiction. If you love people, you want to be around them. I love you. Don't come near me. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. No, we must enliven our consciences by communing with God. Pray to the Father. Pray to the Son. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Enliven and enlighten yourself by communing with God. Stop saying, oh, I don't have enough time. Yes, you do. You've got it. You're just not seeking it. You can carve it out if you want it. I mean, some of you guys that got married, you would do things ridiculous. You would deny yourself sleep to go see that woman. Yeah? I know. Stop talking about loving Jesus when you don't talk to him. Enliven your conscience by communing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, no, fourthly and lastly, we must care for and encourage the consciences of God's people. What? I'll repeat that. We must care for and encourage the consciences of God's people. Let us love one another as Christ loved us. Jesus cares about your conscience. He cares about what goes in. He cares about what comes out. Let us remember how important the consciences of others are. Let us pray for and seek the things that make for peace with God's children. And let us do all within our power not to put stumbling blocks in the way of God's children. So, is it possible for a disciple of Jesus Christ to live with a clear conscience? The Holy Spirit, through the mouth of Paul, says, Yes. I hope you have one. If you don't, I pray that God in his mercy will begin that work of cleansing and informing and shaping that conscience. Because the end product is for us to be like Christ. Amen. By faith, 
by love for our Heavenly Father, by faith in Christ the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank thee for thy great goodness. Thy word is truth. Sanctify us by thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's true and it's truth. Now, Father, fill our hearts and our minds with it. So we begin to take on that family resemblance. And we begin to look like thy son, sound like thy son, act like thy son. Oh, we fail. We fall on our faces. We're weak. We're limited. We still have this flesh. But thou hast given us thy son, the spirit, thy word, and thy people. Help us to walk with them. Loving them. And loving their consciences. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today is the Lord's Supper, which I'm thankful. It is the first of the month. For those of you visiting with us, we're going to have the Lord's Supper now. If you want to stay with us, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not under the discipline of a local church, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus, you are welcome to partake. Let's do this. Let's take about a 10-minute break so everyone can go to the facilities if they need to, if they need water. Please do that, and then we will regather for the Lord's Supper. Let's go in, in Christ's name.